0: Uh, And to reorient you today, last week we uh, began that, we preached through the first seven verses of chapter 17, and then uh, the first 18 verses of chapter 18. And so what we saw there was uh, Elijah declaring to King Ahab uh, that there would be a drought in Israel until the Lord brought rain again. And then we saw that the Lord directed Elijah to the the brook Kerith, where he was fed by ravens. Zephaniah has given me an amen, hearty amen. And then we we skipped over that story uh, that we're looking at today, uh, and fast forwarded to three and a half years later, the drought had been going on for that period of time, and God tells Elijah to go and speak to Ahab, and there we met Obadiah, uh, who was, uh, Scott pointed this out to me last week, he was a servant of, his name means servant of the Lord, and even though he was a servant in the king's house, he feared the Lord far more than he did King Ahab. And Obadiah himself was also sensitive to his own sin and its consequences, unlike Ahab, who had hardened his own heart. Um, despite the fact that he saw this miracle that Elijah say Elijah prophesied come true, that there was a drought that that went on for three years. Well, this morning we're going to rewind back uh, to three and a half years before. So when Elijah leaves the brook Kareth, back at the start of the drought, we're going to pick up the story with what God says next. And so in answer to the question, how can we know the Lord's thoughts? How can we possibly know if His thoughts really are higher than ours? How can we know them? Well, we find an answer, not just in Isaiah 55, but also in our passage this morning that we'll be looking at in 1 Kings. And that answer is... The Lord speaks. That's how we can know His thoughts. He willingly reveals those thoughts to us by speaking to us. And one of the things that happens again and again in these stories with Elijah and Elisha that we'll see is that the Lord speaks. He continues to speak to Elijah and to Elisha. He comes to them and and directs them in what they do. And that continues in our passage this morning, which we'll be looking at. But, you know, once we've answered that question, the next question quickly follows, doesn't it? Okay, so if the Lord speaks, how can we know that what He says is true? How can we trust what the Lord says? Let me finish uh, this section by reading verses 10 to 11 from Isaiah 55. And after that, I'll pray. And then we'll sing, speak, O Lord, as a prayer of humble submission and readiness to hear from God's Word this morning. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth uh, and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Let's pray. O Lord, we praise you. We adore, adore you. We exalt you as the one who has revealed yourself to us by speaking through your word. We praise you as one who is not silent. We praise you as one whose thoughts are higher than ours, and yet, has communicated them to us through your word. Lord, we praise you because uh, you haven't left us without a word. We're not uh, here wondering what you think or wondering uh, what the explanation is of this life and this existence because you have spoken to us. And so, God, we praise you because you have given us your words in Scripture and you beckon us to come to you. God, we praise you that uh, you had call us to receive food and drink without price. We praise you because you have not left us alone. And oh Lord, we praise you as the one who will accomplish all that you purpose through your word. We praise you as the one who saves through your word. We praise you as the one in whom we can depend on, in whom we can trust because of your word. We praise you for Jesus, who is the word made flesh. In his name, we pray these things. Amen.
1: The passage for the sermon today is from 1 Kings 17. 8 through to 24. It's on page 170 in the Blue Bibles. So if you want to open them or we'll fire up your other ones. Starting at verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he rose and went to Zarephath. that I might go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth.
0: Well, how do you know if someone is telling you the truth? If you're a witness in court uh, and you're about to give your testimony for a case, uh, you need to swear an oath. The one that I think most of us would recognise, thanks to pop culture, is. I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Right? You familiar with that? Now, I checked with our lawyer, Josh. People don't say that in Australia. Uh, You get asked something and then you've got to say yes or I do or something like that. But the point, though, of the oath is to make the person promise that they will tell the truth. The problem is unfortunately, the oath doesn't guarantee that the witness is going to actually say the truth. And we all know, don't we, that uh, even people under oath are willing to tell untruths, they are willing to speak not the truth for all sorts of reasons. Uh, maybe they've been bribed, or maybe they want to frame somebody else. So the, the mere saying of the oath doesn't guarantee that they are going to tell the truth. If somebody uh, comes up to me that I know uh, who says, look, I swear I'm telling the truth, it doesn't mean that I know for sure that I can trust what they're saying. More important than them simply saying that oath is whether or not I can trust that they are somebody who is telling me the truth. Well, what about God? How can you know that what He says is truth? Well, that's the nature of our exploration in First Kings 17 this morning. And this morning I have four points. But they're not four points that work the way a standard sermon's points work. Because you see, these four points are all about God's word. And as you'll see, they'll, they'll roughly correspond in emphasis to certain sections of our text this morning in 1 Kings 17. But you would be correct in noticing that all elements of God's word are present at different times and even at the same time. And so, for that reason, I'm going to give them all to you up front. So you can see these dynamic aspects of God's work, as, as, of God's word, as we move through the story. So here they are. Point one, God's sovereign word. Point two, God's powerful word. Point three, God's life-giving word. And point four, God's saving word. If you're taking notes, don't worry, I will bring them up again as we arrive to them so you can write them down. And so with hearts and minds and Bibles open, let's begin our exploration in 1 Kings 17 with point number one. God's sovereign word. Sovereign word. You know, words can be an extension of a ruler's sovereignty. Presidents and kings can speak words that launch war campaigns, that bring their subjects into submission, and that can make neighboring countries surrender. All King David had to say in 2 Samuel 23, 15 was, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. And immediately, three of his mighty men took on a pack of Philistines, fought through them, grabbed some water, brought it back just for the king. That's the power of the king's word. Well, as we discussed last week, the Bible makes it unmistakably clear that the Lord is God and no one can ruin His plans. You think, you think kings and presidents might have some kind of sovereignty? Well, God is the highest sovereignty. There, there is no king, there is no master who is greater than Him. He is the king and the master over everything and no enemy, whether human or or spiritual or something else, can do anything to stop him from achieving his will. He rules over all. And we see that right from the beginning of our passage. Let's read from verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Once again, we see a detail in these instructions that shows that nobody can knock God off his throne. Does anybody know where Zarephath is? Sidon. Hey, he's paying attention. That's right, the text intentionally points out that it belongs to Sidon. And as we noted last week Sidon is Jezebel's country. We saw that in 1 Kings chapter 16 verse 31. This pagan wife of Ahab who who draws his heart away from the Lord, this is where she's from. This is her country. God here is telling Elijah to go get up and go to a small town which is outside of Israel. You know, these aren't even the people who worship the Lord. They worship many other gods. You know, the main one being Baal, also known as Hadad. And as we saw last week, Baal was supposed to be the god of rain and storms, and yet the Lord shows that he is far more powerful over Baal because the Lord declares that there will be a drought, and there is nothing that Baal can do about it. He's just a phony. And so now God is sending Elijah to this pagan land, demonstrating that God's borders extend far beyond Israel's borders. Just because Israel are his chosen people, that does not mean that he does not have sovereignty over everyone else. And what's more, he tells Elijah that he has commanded a widow there to feed him. But it it seems pretty clear from later on in the passage, as we read earlier that the widow doesn't seem to realize that the Lord has commanded her, does she? She doesn't see Elijah and think, ah, here's the prophet that the Lord has commanded me to feed, now let me feed him. No. What we read in the later verses is that the widow interacts with Elijah basically the same way any of us would. Sorry, whoever you are, I've only got a little bit left. My son and I will eat this and then die. And yet here in verse 9, God says that he has commanded the widow. God is sovereign. And this is what Christians throughout the ages have called compatibilism. It's a lovely mouthful. Compatibilism is a word that describes what the Bible teaches in relation to God's will and the will of human beings. Because when you read Scripture, you find that it paints the Lord as the God who is sovereign over all things, who does what He pleases, and His will cannot be thwarted by anyone or anything. And yet at the same time, it also paints human beings as people who make real choices that they are going to be accountable for. Hence the term compatibilism because we are saying that God's sovereignty and human responsibility are compatible. The the mechanism of that, the metaphysics of that, how that all works, the details, the Bible doesn't give. But over and over again, it asserts it as true. And so right here, in the very first verse of our passage, is another example of it. God's word is sovereign. We know that the widow is going to feed Elijah because the Lord has commanded her to, even though at first it seems like maybe she's not going to. Now, that might be new or difficult uh, for, for some of us to grasp. Let me encourage you to continue to look into those things. But I point it out because it has a very practical significance to us. After all, how could you trust that what the Lord says is true if what you thought He said didn't end up happening? Do you have a, uh, to use the cool kid's term, flaky friend? who's known for bailing on things, flaky meaning they're just unreliable. You can't, you know. Do you trust them when they, when they promise that they'll be at your games night or whatever it is? <laughs> no. You know, when, when, this, when this friend, uh, you know, says they'll come and then they don't come and then they say again that they'll come and then they don't come, well, the next time you invite them and they say, yeah, yeah, I'll be there and then they don't come, well, you, you don't think to yourself, oh, shock. No? You say, well, that's what I expected. Such a friend's word doesn't, doesn't really count for anything, does it? Well, God's not a flaky friend. What he says he will do, he will do. You can take his word all the way to the bank. He will do it. And Elijah knows this. He knows it. He he obeys the Lord. And he gets up and he goes to Zarephath. He arrives at the gates of the city, at the boundaries of the city. He's not even in the city yet. And behold, there is a widow there gathering sticks, presumably to make a fire. Widows in the ancient world, they were some of the poorest in society. To have no husband meant having no source of income. And if you have no other family to look after you, then you're in a very, very difficult position. And yet, Elijah, when he sees her, he doesn't skip a beat, does he? He doesn't show any sort of doubt. And the Bible doesn't tell us how he knows, but Elijah knows that this is the widow that God is referring to, that he has commanded, him, commanded her to feed. And so, he asks her to bring him some water for a drink. And the widow goes to do what Elijah says, and we think to ourselves, Aha! She is the widow! He asks for water, and away she goes! But then, as she's going, Elijah does a classic, oh, while you're up. (laughs) She says, "Oh, oh, while you're there, some bread would be good too. Look at her response in verse 12. As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Well, we now know that she's not aware that the Lord has commanded her to feed Elijah. But, you know, we also learn something else about this widow. The fact that she says here, as the Lord your God lives shows that she has obviously heard about the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is really quite incredible. She's in a foreign land that worships foreign gods, and here she is swearing an oath by the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. It, it would be like uh, going to Saudi Arabia today, and the first person you meet is a Christian. Uh, it's, you just don't expect that. But not only is it incredible that she knows the Lord, she actually swears this oath in His name. And you know, at this stage, we don't know how much she knows uh, the Lord or, or whether how she believed in Him, but she certainly does enough to actually make this oath. And this oath formula is a, is a bit like saying in a court, I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. It's her way of saying, hey, I know who the Lord is and I recognize that he's done great things for you guys in Israel. And I promise you on his name that what I am telling you is truth. You might remember from last week, Obadiah uses this same oath formula in 1 Kings 18 verse 10. And it shows us one of the points of similarity between Obadiah and the widow. As the Lord your God lives, the widow says. This drought is so bad and I am so poor and I am literally on my last morsel, my son and I are going to eat this and die. Can you imagine being in that situation? It's hard for us to picture uh, A situation like that, as Australians living in a country that has seen so much prosperity, where we we have a good welfare system, the odds of us ever needing to say something like this are extremely slim. But at different points in our lives, we all face situations that are outside of our control, don't we? We all face circumstances where we are at the mercy of other forces and we can do nothing about it. Like a fourth baby who keeps moving around and changing the position that they're in, in their mother's womb. Situations where we can feel completely helpless. Overwhelming work and life demands. Cyclones, bushfires, a life-altering accident, facing the consequences of decisions that I have made over the last decade, which I can now no longer change. Hopelessness, life-threatening illness to ourselves and to our loved ones. What do you look to when you are down a well and you cannot get out? What do you do, who do you turn to when there is nothing you can do about your circumstances? Well, hear Elijah's words to this widow in verse 13. Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. Do not fear. Do not fear. How could Elijah possibly say that? And not only that, but then he goes on to instruct her to take this last morsel of bread that you're about to make and don't eat it, but give it to me. And then go and make some for yourself. What if there's not enough? I mean, sure, people often comfort each other when they face these situations by saying, hey, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. I'm sure you've heard that before, I'm sure, especially if you're a parent, you've said that before. Don't worry, everything is going to be fine. But you know, when we say that, more often than not, we're usually, we're usually just trying to calm someone down. Usually we're trying to make them feel better, and in most situations, the reality is we don't know that everything's going to be okay. So for Elijah to be saying this, he is either giving false hope or he has a direct line to the author of the universe, to the master of all of creation, to the one who is sovereign over all things. Do not fear. Can you imagine if, if you were literally starving to death and someone came along and told you this? What would, what would your reaction be? I know what mine would be. Show me the money. Unless, unless you want to just hold out false hope to me here right now, uh, I want to know what guarantee I have to not fear because I am literally about to die. Yet Elijah knew. He knew the Lord's word was true. And he knew that he is sovereign over all things, that there is no domain outside of his command. And that he knew that the Lord would do what he said he would do. And that brings us to point two God's powerful word. Let's read verse 14. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Now, just like uh, with the other occasions in these passages, we, we don't know how the Lord gives Elijah this word, but what we do know is that the Lord gives him this word. But, again, how do we know that it's an actual word from the Lord? After all, false prophets existed. You even read about them in Scripture. How can you know that what Elijah is saying here truly is from him? Well, we apply the test of Deuteronomy 18, verses 21 to 22. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, You need not be afraid of him. Pretty simple test, really. If a prophet says, thus says the Lord, and then says something and it doesn't happen, clearly it wasn't from the Lord. Elijah spoke to King Ahab, said there will be a drought, Israel will be dry as a bone. That happened. clearly he is a true prophet. And so if Elijah's claim that this is a word from the Lord is true, then what we can expect is something that is going to be incredibly powerful. Something that is going to go against the usual laws of nature. When you've only got a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil left, our experience tells us that I'm going to have one more little bun and then that's it. But Elijah speaks uh, this powerful word and says, no, actually it is going to last And not only will it feed me, because you're giving it to me first, but also you and your son, and not just for a a couple of days, but for the whole entire time of this drought. You will not go hungry. We will not go hungry. Elijah was confident in the word of God. He was confident in its power to accomplish its purpose. So let me ask you this morning. Are you confident in the Word of God? Now, I'm not suggesting that uh, you're a prophet like Elijah, and so you can go and boldly and confidently go and declare some kind of miracle like this is going to occur. And we'll talk a little bit later on about what God's Word actually is, but for now, I simply want you to consider... How confident are you in the Word of God? Confident that God is powerful to do anything by His Word? Even reverse the laws of nature? Transcend them? Could you say to someone at the end of their rope, Do not fear. Do not fear, the Lord is sovereign and He is good and He is trustworthy and all things work together for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. Could you quote Romans 8.28 like that and be able to say it with confidence even if it meant that the good that the Lord intends for you or for others is not to grant you more years on earth but to call you home to Him. The Lord's Word is powerful. Powerful enough to perform miracles and signs. Powerful enough to provide for the starving widow and her son and Elijah. Powerful enough to raise the dead to life. Powerful enough to sustain those He has called to keep trusting in Him until the very end. Even when that end Comes in the middle of a bushfire in your early 20s as it did for a friend of mine. The Lord's word is powerful. The widow believed the word of the Lord that Elijah spoke to her and she obeyed. And what happened? Well, verse 16... The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to, according to what? The word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. It was not emptied according to the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord accomplished what it was supposed to. And the three of them had food, and did not go hungry in the drought. You know, centuries later, a ruler in Israel would hear about a prophet who was performing signs and miracles around the Judean countryside. And in Luke 9, uh, verse 8, people would report to this ruler, saying that, well, some say that Elijah has appeared. And then in the very next scene, we see that very prophet speaking his own powerful word, which causes five loaves and two fish to not run out. And it feeds over 5,000 people. God's word is powerful. And what God sets out to achieve with his word, he will accomplish. And that brings us to our third point, God's life-giving word. Sometime after this, the widow's son becomes ill, and then he dies. The Bible describes it in a gentle way by saying that there was no breath left in him. But of course, we know he's dead because of the widow's response in verse 18, where she says to Elijah. What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. As I mentioned earlier, if you were here last week, you might remember we talked about Obadiah and his sensitivity to his own sin. He says something very similar in chapter 18, verse 9, recognizing that sometimes the trouble that we experience is a direct result of our sin. And so Elijah, he takes the boy up in his arms and he carries him up to the room in the upper chamber. He lays him on his own bed. And now we see a side of Elijah that will turn up again later in his life. One that indicates that, yes, even though he hears the word of the Lord, he speaks the word of the Lord as a prophet of God, he is nonetheless still imperfect. Let's read from verse 20. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? It's a cry of desperation. Now, is Elijah unaware of, of what the Lord's about to do here? Or is he just being melodramatic, perhaps? I mean, he's seen lots of incredible signs God perform. Well, it's hard to know. The Bible doesn't say. But one thing's for sure. This is the the first resurrection miracle in the Bible where somebody actually dies and is brought back to life. And guess what? In the Old Testament, it only happens twice more. And we're going to get to those two instances when we look at the life of Elisha. So the fact that this is the first time this has ever happened tells us the uniqueness of what is about to happen here. This is possibly the first time that anyone in history has ever actually died and then been raised back to life. So I reckon that makes it just a little bit more understandable to hear why the prophet perhaps felt this tragedy quite keenly. And yet, even though Elijah might not understand why God's done this, did you notice the posture of his prayer? Did you notice how he prays? Oh Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow by killing her son? Do you see? Elijah knows that the Lord is sovereign. He knows that the Lord alone holds the keys to life and death. He knows that he is the one to whom he must cry out. It has to be the Lord, not Baal, not Hadad, not any other false gods. Well, let's read the next couple of verses from verse 21. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. Now why Elijah does this? I have no idea. Some might have speculated that He was trying to resuscitate him or something, which is just ridiculous. But, maybe God told him to. Whatever the reason, what matters is that Elijah's prayer and the Lord's response we see in this text. Now, of course, Elijah had faith as he prayed, but remember the posture that he prays with. Elijah knows that it's the Lord's word which is sovereign. That it's the Lord's word which is powerful and that it's the Lord's word which gives life. Not Elijah's. Elijah's word doesn't have that kind of power. Elijah's word can't make flour and oil last, can't bring a dead boy back to life. Only God's word does. But here again, we see God choosing to accomplish his will through the prayers of his people. He listens to Elijah's prayer and he brings the child back to life. And Elijah brings him down to his mother and says what I'm sure had more emotion in the moment than what we see in the text. See, your son lives. I'm pretty confident it was... There's more emotion involved in that interaction. But once again, the Lord's Word is confirmed, isn't it? God's Word gives life. And you know, I mentioned before that this is one of only three resurrections in the whole Old Testament, one by Elijah, two by Elisha. Well, another prophet would come along centuries later And he would perform three resurrections as well. At least three that we know about. And in one of them, there is, yet again, a striking similarity. In Luke chapter 7, we read about Jesus going to a town called Nain, which is in Galilee. And as he and his disciples approach the gate of the town, note the... that's interesting, isn't it? The gate of the town, there they find a son and a widow and the son who has died and is being carried out of the town. Jesus has compassion on her, and then he raises the man to life, but do you know how he does it? He doesn't pray, depending on what you mean by that. He simply says, in verse 14 of chapter 7, Young man, I say to you, arise. He didn't have to call on any other external authority. And so, when Jesus does this, when he says this, when he is the one who has the very words that can bring the dead to life, well, that ought to make us think who is this guy? And in verse 15, Luke takes care to use the exact same words in the Greek Old Testament from our passage in 1 Kings, where he says Jesus gave him to his mother. And it's such an obvious parallel that if you've got a Bible with cross-references, you'd likely have one to this very verse in our passage today. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see what Luke is trying to tell us? Yes, Elijah was a great prophet who performed great miracles. He even raised a dead son to life. But now, now here is one that the Old Testament has been anticipating. Here is one that the prophet Elijah was simply a shadow of. Here is one who does not simply speak for God. Here is one who speaks as God. Jesus' words give life. And that brings us to our final point God's saving word. Let's read the last verse in our passage, verse 24. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. All the way along we've been getting hints that the the widow has known who the Lord is and that she at least has has some level of respect and knowledge and understanding of him. She even calls Elijah a man of God in verse 18. Now now it all reaches this incredible climax Now I know Now I know that you are a man of God Now I know that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth What's happened What's changed The Lord, well, she's seen the signs, hasn't she? The Lord kept them alive. She was on death's door, but he provided food through Elijah. And then he raised her dead son to life. The widow witnessed the Lord's work. She saw the signs and she believed his word. Now she knows that Elijah is speaking the Lord's true word and now she knows that the Lord isn't like the gods that her people worship. Those gods who aren't sovereign, those gods who aren't powerful, those gods who cannot bring the dead back to life, those gods who cannot save. Now she knows that the word of the Lord is true and that it's nothing but the truth. Can you say the same thing? Do you believe that God's word is truth? Because you see, it's one thing to say that, that you believe in God and that you believe that the Bible is His word, It's another thing to rest your life on that belief. It's one thing to hear God's word. It's entirely a different thing to live knowing that it is truth. But this raises a difficult question for us, doesn't it? How can I know that something truly is the Word of God? I'm sure for most of us, we'd be saying, well, if I had a son who had just died and God brought him back to life right in front of my eyes, yeah, then of course I'd believe His Word. Of course I would then be able to say the same thing as the widow and say, now I know that the Word of the Lord is truth. And the problem is, when was the last time that happened? I've never met a single Christian who came to believe because somebody was resurrected before their eyes. And I've met a lot of Christians. As far as I'm aware, since biblical times, no so-called prophet has arisen that is able to pass the Deuteronomy 18 test. I saw at least three so-called prophets on social media, media who prophesied that Donald Trump would win the election in 2020. And I wasn't even looking for those. They just came and found me. I'm sure if I did go looking, I'd be able to find plenty more. And sadly, I know way too many people who've been told things in their lives that were supposedly words from the Lord and they never came true. What do you think that says about God and his word? If that's been your experience of it, if that's what you think it is, I mean, if God speaks truth, how can we trust what he says? if God really can raise the dead, why doesn't He still do it today? Well, the answer to that question is, He does. He does still raise the dead today. Just perhaps not in the way that you might think. the widow of Zarephath, she stared death in the face twice. And like her, we understand what it's like to fear death, don't we? Death has a a tangible reality that we can feel. But perhaps she, like many of us, didn't realize how much more severe the consequences of spiritual death are in comparison. Look at Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's the Lord he is speaking of. God is still in the business of raising the dead. He's raising dead souls bound for eternal punishment to life in Jesus now and eternal life with Him forever. As I said before, one of, one of the purposes of Elijah's ministry and, and, and of his signs was to foreshadow the coming of Jesus. Jesus. I've tried to point that out to you along the way, how Jesus' very own ministry shares very many striking similarities to Elijah's, and yet it also shows that Jesus is greater than Elijah himself. The death that Elijah dealt with, where, that he rose to life, that he, that he brought life to, pales in comparison to the death that Jesus saves us from. And this is made abundantly clear by Jesus himself, especially in Luke 4. In Luke 4, we see Jesus in his hometown, the the town of Nazareth, where he grew up. And he's preaching in the local synagogue, as he did whenever he went to the different towns. And he reads from Isaiah 61, and he says, hey guys, guess what? this this promised Messiah that you guys have been waiting for for centuries, this, this prophet that the Old Testament continues to point to and speak about and prophesy about, that Messiah is me. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, he says. And everyone's amazed. But they're not only amazed. They also say, ah you know what? We've we've heard, Jesus, that you performed some miracles in in the neighbouring town of Capernaum, although, you know, we're not really sure if that actually did happen. But we we want to see you do them here first, before we believe in you. I mean, after all, we know you. You grew up here. You know, we know your parents, we know your siblings. We can even walk to the house where you went to the toilet. You you know, if, if you really are this great prophet. I mean, you, you look like, just like every other ordinary Joe that we know. So, I, I think you need to prove that to us first. And what's Jesus' response? This is what he says from verse 24. Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Now, why would they be filled with wrath? Why would they be so angry with Jesus for saying this that they would then want to kill him, which is the very thing that they do next. Well, they try to. I'll tell you why. Because they know what he's saying. Jesus doesn't have to spell it out for them what he's saying. Jesus recalls these events from the ministry of Elijah and Elisha to show the people in Nazareth who they are. Ahab did not listen to Elijah, even though Israel was dry as a bone for three and a half years. There were lots of widows in Israel, the nation who were supposed to be God's people, and yet God sent Elijah to a foreigner and worked profound signs in her life. Naaman, whom we'll hear about in a few weeks, was also a foreigner, and yet he was the one who was healed of his leprosy, not other lepers in Israel. Do you see what Jesus is doing? It was the people of Israel, the very people who were supposed to be the people of God, the very people who were supposed to be the ones who were known throughout the world for worshipping the Lord... They were the very ones who rejected him. They were the very ones who decided to chase after foreign gods, false idols. And in contrast, who were the ones who did believe in God? Who did believe in the Lord? Who were the ones who responded to the signs and the miracles that the Lord performed them for, for them with faith? Who? It was the pagans the Sidonian widow, the Syrian leper. These two witnessed the power of God's word and believed. Unlike King Ahab, unlike the people of Nazareth, And the people of Nazareth, just like Ahab, tried to kill the prophet rather than recognize from the sign their own sin and repent. You see, the point of Elijah raising the widow's son wasn't so that she could get her son back for a few more years and then go on living her Baal-worshipping pagan life and then continue on a road to hell. The point of God saving her physical life wasn't so that she could marvel and wonder at the never-ending supply of flour and oil. The point of it all was so that by the word of the Lord, she would be raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. Now I know that the word of the Lord is truth. And it was the same with Jesus' own ministry. He wasn't a traveling musician. He didn't go around just simply to wow people with the things that he could do and his ability to perform signs. As a matter of fact, in Luke 16, 31, Jesus makes it crystal clear that even a resurrection, perhaps the most amazing of all signs in itself, won't make people believe. So what do we do then? If we don't have the same ability as Elijah to make it stop raining or to make food last years or to call down fire from heaven or to bring somebody to life, what do we do? What sign can I show that will make people believe? Well, let's hear it from Jesus himself in Luke 4.43. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. You see, Jesus didn't come just to perform signs. He didn't come to tell you that God's crazy about you. He didn't come to tell you that he has come so that you could live a hashtag blessed life the purpose for which he was sent was to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And what sign accompanied the kingdom of God? The sign that would leave a resurrection-shaped dent in the historical record that would change the course of human history forever. The one resurrection to beat all other resurrections. The one resurrection to rule them all. (laughs) Jesus didn't just raise Jairus' daughter. He didn't just raise the widow's son. And he didn't just raise Lazarus from the dead. He did something that none of the other prophets could do. He raised himself. And this is the essence of the good news. This is the sign that accompanies the gospel of the kingdom of God. And no, you don't need to have been there on the day when Jesus came to life because we have the Bible. John 20 verses 30 to 31 makes this clear. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. If you're here this morning and if you're not a Christian or if you're wondering what all of this is all about, if you're wondering what we're all about, this is it. We're all about speaking this Word of God, which is all about this good news. And if you're wondering what the good news is, it's the news that Jesus Christ died on the cross so that you might have life. Real life, true life, spiritual life. And when I say that, I don't mean it the way it might sound, as though Jesus came to just give you a happy or a satisfied or your best life. No, the essence of the good news is that even though every single one of us is born in sin, even though every single one of us is spiritually dead from the moment that we are physically born, God has spoken his sovereign, powerful, life-giving, saving word through his good news. And that good news is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And the best news is that you don't have to earn it. As a matter of fact, you cannot earn it. You don't have enough money. You can't do enough good deeds in your life to be able to earn it. But when you come to him, when you recognize that you bring nothing to God in your hands except your own sin, when you come humble and hungry for salvation, then you'll see that he invites you, he beckons you, and he says, you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is the good news that you may have life in his name. Jesus' resurrection is the ultimate sign pointing to God's salvation. This is the purpose. This is the reason why we can read about the widow's son being raised to life. So that your eyes, so that your heart might be turned to him and to seek his salvation. So which town are you from? Are you in Nazareth or Capernaum? When Jesus went to Capernaum later in Luke 4, they saw the signs that he performed and believed. Have you seen the signs in his word and believed? Do you live Even when you're down to your very last morsel, when you are at the bottom of the barrel, even when you're in the valley of the shadow of death, do you live holding on to God's word? I get it. We all have parts of God's word that we struggle with, right? or things that perhaps we even refuse to believe. Sometimes that's in matters of understanding, things that we just don't get, or perhaps that we don't like, like compatibilism. Verses about predestination and God hardening Pharaoh's heart, they become things that we just think that cannot possibly be true. And so we find a way to get around them. Other times, it's in far more personal matters. Like in James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. When was the last time you responded with joy when you experienced a significant trial? Did you think to yourself, God, I'm so glad that you are producing steadfastness in me through the testing of my faith here. When others go through trials, where do you turn to comfort them? Do you hold out false hope? Or do you offer them hope Anchored in God's word. When you or others are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, do you go to Psalm 23 and remind them that they need not fear evil because God is with them even in the valley? Are you confident in the word of the Lord? Are you confident that it is truth? Brothers and sisters, I know this isn't easy. That's why we must keep saturating ourselves in Scripture and holding fast to the truth of God's Word and pleading with Him to transform our hearts and our minds by His Spirit. And we must do that because we have no other anchor that will keep us going through life. It's only when we look to the gospel, it's only when we trust in the good news of Jesus, when we see Jesus dying on the cross for our sin and conquering death so that we also might be raised to life, it's only when we look to those things that we can possibly have hope. Lord, grant us grace. To hear and believe and to trust your word and to live dependent on your truth because it's only by believing your word that we are saved do you want us to hear god speak the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth read the bible In it are God's words. They are words of life. And he does not lie. Let me finish by reading to you from Hebrews 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you. In which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. God's word is true, and He is trustworthy. And it is his sovereign, powerful, life giving, saving word. Will you trust his word today? Let's pray. Our Lord, there is no God but you. Who can comprehend your mind? Who can understand your will? And you have deemed that we would receive your thoughts, your will, in your word. Father, we struggle to believe it, to rest in it, to see that life comes through faith in Jesus. So Father, please help us to look Jesus to look to the cross to see the risen Lord and for our hearts to believe Lord by your spirit may you please continue to do that in our lives each moment until the day we depart from this world May we look forward to the hope of the resurrection in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.